Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Asian Americans. This is episode 93. If you're joining us for the first time, thank you and welcome. If you're joining us for the 93rd time, thanks for being a great fan and thanks for being a listener. This week, we celebrated a few uh, cool things. We surpassed 5,000 followers on Instagram. If you haven't yet, follow us on at The Asian Americans on Instagram. And over the weekend, um, I just realized and celebrated the fact that it had been exactly one year since I recorded our very first episode with guest number one, Jonathan Wong. And it was one of the only two interviews that we did in person, the other one being uh, Rajiv Satyal, who was guest number three. Obviously, 2020 has given us our uh, share of challenges, but I am so glad that um, we've been able to share our stories throughout the year um, and and to leave uh, leave these stories forever in the universe for us to listen to, for our children and our grandchildren to listen to. As many of you know by now, I started the show on March 2nd, 2020, as a gift to my daughter on her first birthday. And so to celebrate her second birthday, we're going to be going episode 100, and I'll jump in the guest chair. So got a few more surprises coming uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, Today is episode 93, so we got seven more weeks until that happens. And I encourage you to uh, join, listen to some episodes, new and old. Uh, invite some friends to join us, join us along for the ride and engage with us on social media. If you're listening to us on Apple, um, big favor to ask to rate and review the show. Uh, those really help other people find the show and to let Apple know that you like the show. And so please let us know. And a reminder, we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the Americans. If you want to support the work that we are doing on going basis, I would really appreciate your support as well. Got a great one today. Uh, Kanor Behal is a friend of mine, a former consultant, and now she's running her own consulting practice. Um, and all lot of the things that we uh, care about, she's got a new book coming out called I Quit. You'll hear about it in the podcast interview. Um, give her a follow. Give her a shout. Purchase her book if it resonates with you. Um, thank you so much for letting me do this, allowing me to do this. Such an honor and a pleasure and really, really humbled that I'm able to share our stories and have fun doing it. Thanks again for joining us. And here now is my conversation with Kanor. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Happy New Year, I think, by the time you're listening to this. And we hope, we all hope that 2021 is a better year than 2020 has been. But as we sit here today, at least here in California where I am, um, the first doses of the vaccine are out. And hopefully people will take them. Hopefully people um, put on their masks. And maybe by the time you're listening to this, we have a brand new president, and we are headed in the right direction. Regardless, I'm wishing you all the health and happiness as we continue to struggle and battle with this uh, deadly virus and hope that everybody you care about, as well as yourself, are doing well. You know, when we talk about what has happened in 2020, we've had to reorient a lot. Uh, we've had to learn new skills. We've had to come up with new rules. And particularly, uh, because we've had not had the opportunity as much as we should have, Um, or at least if you're following the rules that you're supposed to, we've had to reorient who's in our lives, obviously physically, but also, um, it's been a nice time to reevaluate that. And so my friend and guest today, um, has made her life sort of new next chapter's goal in sharing that story of why we should reorient and why we should quit certain things and why we should really view things not as quitting, but reorienting and reprioritizing and thinking of how we should protect our time, our space, and really make 
us the priority in what we do. And I think 2020 has given us a lot of great opportunity to think about that, whether you can't go see your family or, you know, you're not being pressured into participating in social activities that you never really brought you any joy in the first place. For as challenging as 2020 has been, it's also been a really nice year to not see the people you don't want to see because you can't. And so really excited to learn um, the origin story, the progression and identity building story of my friend Kanora Bahal, um, who joins us from Seattle today. And we're going to be so excited to talk to her and learn about all the fun stops that she's had along her career. So Kanora, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so grateful to be here. I am excited to talk to you. As people on our show probably know by now, I get particularly excited to talk to people who have left the clenches of consulting to do something for themselves. <laughs> and so that brings me extra pleasure. Because um, <laughs> I think, it, you know, it, it gives us a lot of perspective on what it was to have a very demanding and very time-consuming job, um, really to build somebody else's empire. And when you're in a consulting role in that way, you're actually building two empires, the firms and the clients, and really not a focus on what does that mean for me? And so really excited to learn because that wasn't always your first passion. Yeah. You know, you, you've dabbled in entertainment, in comedy, and, and now you are, you know, 100% on your own as a, a strategist, a speaker, as a researcher, and uh, very soon um, a published author um, for a book that we already know that is going to be uh, wildly successful. So really excited to learn about you and, and to help us get to, you know, get to know that or get to know you better. Let's roll back the clock a little bit and start with how the Bahal family came to America. Tell us everything. Where did you guys come from? Where did you land? And, you know, tell us a little bit about the earlier years of that experience. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm so happy to like tell you what I know. Um, and I, I just hope that some members of my family don't listen to this and are like, oh, she got it all wrong. Because one problem is that my parents don't tell me shit about the history of my family. <laughs> I, I don't think you're alone. A lot I of people know, are like, right? mine don't tell me shit either. Right? <laughs> like, like I was like in my late 20s, I think, when I learned that my dad had to flee Uganda because of a dictator. And I was like, what? Like, why did that never come up? So anyway, I come from a from a parentage that is not very um, out with their history or their family <laughs> stories. Um, um, I, so over the years, I've thankfully found other relatives, a cousin and aunt of mine in particular, who are much more forthcoming with telling stories. So what I'm about to say is kind of a, a stitch together, you know, of, of what I've learned over the years, not from my parents. Um, but so my, my mom and my dad, uh, both are of Indian origin. Um, my dad actually grew up in Nairobi, Kenya, though. His, his grandparents moved to Nairobi um, from what at that time was still India, but a mm. generation later became Pakistan. Um, my mom's family, her grandparents, also moved from what at that time was still India, but soon became Pakistan, um, uh, to New Delhi. And so um, kind of both wings of my parents, you know, families, they kind of like, they left India kind of a generation before partition happened. Um, and so it was really interesting. Like, I don't really have a lot of like family, like intelligence or information about what life was like during, during partition, because they were already like, for one to two generations, kind of like, ensconced in New Delhi already or ensconced in Nairobi, Kenya already. And so, um, um, but the, their families were friends. And so like my, my dad and his brothers, they grew up in Nairobi, but they went to boarding school in the Himalayas of India. 
and they went to like a Protestant boarding school. And so I think the story was that, you know, um, the families were friends from the generation that lived in what's now Pakistan. And so whenever my dad's parents would visit their sons, you know, kind of one of the gathering places was my mom's family's home in, in New Delhi. And so I think my, my parents actually knew each other, like from when they were teenagers. And um, yeah, and so then my, you know, my dad um, started medical school in Uganda, <laughs> as I referenced earlier, and then had to kind of flee because of Ida Amin. And he was kind of, you know, launching a genocide against South Asians um, in Uganda. And I only kind of vaguely know of my dad, you know, needing to drive his car to the border with Kenya, leave the car there and walk over where like my grandfather was waiting, waiting to kind of take him back to Nairobi. Um, and so that, of course, put a wrinkle on my dad's med school plans. But he ended up finishing med school in England, in Bristol. Um, I'm sure there was some kind of uh, reciprocity, you know, with Kenyan citizenship and British citizenship. and. And so he finished med school, and then, uh, as I like to say, he went and fetched my mother uh, in India, and they got and they got married. And um, I think during this time, there were also like love letters being exchanged and and that kind of thing, uh, some courtship happening. But as I said, my parents don't tell me shit. So, um, so they got married, um, and I'm sure a big question everyone has was like, was it arranged? And even myself have asked like my mom that question when I was younger. And she was like, well, it was like semi-arranged. We were told to like go on a date. And if you liked each other, think about getting married. But if we didn't like each other, don't get married, you know? So they they definitely were from, um, if you can call it like a bit more progressive kind of city slicker, kind of uh, cosmopolitan kind of family. Um, um, and so, uh, you know, like both, both sides of my family were very passionate about educating the girls as well as the boys, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, so that's when my parents met. And then because of my dad's medical career, you know, they ended up living all over the UK, um, Cornwall and Wales, and then they moved to Canada. Um, and then they moved to rural Ohio where my life began. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was it, was that, was that occupation related? I think so. Yeah. And so this is again, where like, this is probably a mixture of me being told things over the years, but also my own assumptions and like knowledge about that time in America's immigration history, like in the seventies and eighties. But, um, so my parents went to Canada first and then they wanted to come to the U S and so, you know, obviously my dad was skilled. He was a, a mm. physician um, but I think at that time, you know, well, people often ask like, oh, why did your parents end up in rural Ohio? And my short answer is racism, because, you know, people of his skill, but also his skin color were intentionally sent to underserved areas of the country. Like they could, they had to go, you know, go to those places. Um, but also, you know, where I grew up in Ohio is a town called Lima. Um, my dad did not work in either of the hospitals in Lima because at least one of the boards told him we have a strict no brown hiring policy. So my dad actually worked in two even more rural hospitals that are about 30, 40 minutes away, including the one where I was born. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. That's wild. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. No, no, no. I mean, no, it, it's not. <laughs> um, you had the perfect response for that. 
I think we, <laughs> even me, I am, you know, I, I talk to people every week with, with crazy stories or crazier mm. stories. But the fact that racism and policies and institutionalized hate led to a lot of our origin stories. Yeah. Right? Like, come, but don't, like, take the jobs that we don't want, you know. Yeah. Come, but only if and if, you know, like, and I think it's important to view immigration or uh, policy from an economic lens most of the time and mm -hmm. to realize that it, perhaps as many people would like to think that America is not this generous, open arms, Statue of Liberty type country that wanted all the darker skin color people, yeah. whether you're yellow, brown or other brown or whatever it is. It was literally and still continues to be an economically dependent driver to do the things that the current inhabitants and now we're part of that group too yeah. um, that don't want to do, right? Like yeah. um, during the, uh, what was it? I think it was COVID-related immigration ban or some sort of pause on issuing visas. Mm. Like the farm workers had a carve out for temporary seasonal mm -hmm. farm workers from South America because yeah. guess what? Like white people don't pick your food, yeah. right? Like <laughs> neither neither does the average American, right? Like that's mm -hmm. a job that I wouldn't want to, like, you know, and I'm, I'm honest with that too, right? Like, and so are you, like, we wouldn't want to do that. That's hard, mm -hmm. grueling work. And so who gets to do that are the people who, for whom that economic opportunity is better than the current yeah. situation that they have, right? So like, you know, also like, why, why do we have the stereotype that there's so many Filipino nurses in America? Right. Track the visas. Track, totally. You know, like. Or like West Indian, why? like home caregivers or like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Like, so, yeah. So if you, like, so it's, it's, and then, you know, to have it be so blatantly discriminatory and get away with it because who are the enforcers and who are, you know, who, who make the rules and who enforces the rules? Completely yeah. a different system. Um, yeah. And so, I, know I, I definitely want to like say that, you know, like my, my parents' situation was very different than that of say like a migrant worker coming to pick fruit, you know? Um, Cause my dad was a professional class, which at that time is why they were allowed to come into the United mm -hmm. States, right? Um, but yeah. also he had choice, you know, having come from the Commonwealth, you know, like he could have gone to Australia or stayed in Canada or, you know, like that kind of, and I, uh. I used to like tell him like, why are we in rural Ohio when I could be like <laughs> a cool surfer girl with an accent in Australia right now, <laughs> you know? And so, <laughs> um, but maybe I would have been bitten by a snake and poisoned. So who knows? Um, but um, but, but yeah, so, I mean, they definitely were coming in with a lot more choice and a lot more privilege, mm -hmm. but, but to your point, you know, it's, it's never without conditions when you're yeah. not white. Right. Of course. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, it's yeah. like, I grew up, yes, in rural Ohio and it's like pretty shitty town, but it, like, I mean, every boyfriend I've brought home has always been amazed at how like big the Indian community is there. And you're like, well, yeah, it's because there's two hospitals here, you know? And it's like, there's no other reason right. like you would choose to live there, you know? Like <laughs> like hours away from any Hindu temple, hours away from any like Indian grocery store, you know? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't choose it, yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, so tell me about growing up in that town. Like, you know, you you, you mentioned that it's very rural and it had, you know, these mm -hmm. this uh, socially accepted discriminatory policies even at the hospital, which... Mm -hmm. 
who gives a crap? You're trying to make people healthier. Mm -hmm. But there's also this small and tight-knit community of, you know, people with similar backgrounds because of the same things. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Did you, I mean, you, you obviously, you know, left and, and headed east as, as early as you could have for college. Mm -hmm. But like, what were some of your earlier influences and what did you want to do? What were your parents' influences? Yeah. Were they encouraging you to get? I mean, they were <laughs> world, they were world travelers by then, right? Yeah. And, and so it's, it's this, most when we talk about American small town mindset, it's without that experience. Yours was different because they traveled the world and then ended up there. Yeah. And so it's fascinated to learn sort of what your, you know, your personal influences and expectations and sort of the things that were put on you as by your parents. Yeah. Oh my God. My mind is spinning. I have so many, so many things I could say to answer that, like really those amazing questions. And so stop me if I start to ramble, but, um, <laughs> but you know, the first question was like, what was it like growing up there? You know, and I, and I definitely, I definitely am still waging an internal battle over my thoughts about growing up there. So it's, and there's kind of a before and after related, very much related to the 2016 presidential election, right? The before was that, you know, never liked the town. By the age of 12, you know, there's nothing there for you. And you have to leave, you know, like, um, um, so never loved it. Um, was very, very privileged and lucky to like, have international parents, including you know, visiting relatives abroad, you know, getting to go to Kenya as a kid to see my grandparents go on safari, going to India every couple of years. And on top of that, you know, my parents like to travel, you know, and so we would travel internationally quite a bit. Like I was 11 when we went to Egypt, you know, and I saw the pyramids. And so, you know, like, um, and also kind of this, I was accepted, you know, like I, I was accepted. I was a leader. I was, I think, respected and looked up to. I was homecoming queen, you know? So I, I had a pretty mm. good childhood. And so like the before 2016, kind of the, the refrain was like, oh, it was a nice place to go grow up, but like a really easy place to leave, you know? And I still, I'm like so frustrated that my parents still live there, you know? And so, um, um, and then post 2016, I think like for a lot of us, um, like the veil was lifted where it was like, oh my God, like, no, this like undercurrent of racism was there all along. And like these kids I grew, grew up with, like there was a sense of betrayal of like, how could they have grown up with me and even done something as silly, as meaningless as like vote me homecoming queen, but then grow up to be the racist they always were and yep. vote for Trump, you know? And it's just like this profound sense of betrayal of like re-questioning like, well, was I accepted? Was I respected, <laughs> you know? And like, um, and yeah, so I think, you know, both those, that before and after kind of assessment of like what it was like to grow up there coexist, right? While I was growing up, I had a very easy, pretty easy time. I mean, definitely encountered some racism, definitely with the power of like 20 years of hindsight can look back and be like, oh wait, that was fucked up, you know, but I didn't know it, you know? And so, but, um, but you know, that being said, like I was, I definitely wanted to leave, you know, cause you just know, like I said before, by age of 12, you're like, there is nothing here for me, you know? And, um, and it is interesting, you know, like my parents, you know, it's, 
and this might be a common thing amongst Asian immigrants, but like our parents like traveled oceans away from their homes, <laughs> you know, and like, um, and yet like my parents, my dad, especially all he wants for me is to like live close to home, <laughs> you know, and he's like terrified every time I moved to a new city and I'm not even leaving the country. I'm just moving from city to city in America, you know? So it's just really, it's really interesting how like our parents who took like the grandest of risks, you know, like then kind of don't want you to take the risks that you kind of saw them, <laughs> saw them take. So um, that's kind of something that, that has, uh, I've, I, has dawned on me, you know, um, there where it's like, I'm doing way less risk taking than you probably think that you did, you know? So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, my parents definitely like, they still live there. Same house I grew up in. They love it. I'll never understand why. Uh, <laughs> I keep trying to get them to move to Chicago where my older brother is. Um, but, um, they have some community there for sure. Yeah. yeah. So what did you want to do and what did you end up choosing as sort of your primary and secondary areas of focus as you, um, headed East to New York city for yeah. college? Well, as my family tells it from the moment I could talk, um, my answer to the, what are you going to do when you grow up was always, I'm going to go to Hollywood. <laughs> and so I think from before I even have memories, um, I had the itch to like, you know, work in entertainment. And so, um, when I went to, uh, but I was also always a good student, you know, and I, and I liked school, you know, and I liked a lot of different subjects. It was pretty annoyingly active in a lot of different clubs and groups and that kind of thing. And, um, so, um, but I went to college and I, I knew at a young age, I wanted to like do something in entertainment probably when I was like six or seven because of lack of imagination, I thought it was like be an actress, you know? And then, um, but I think by the time I got into high school, I got really interested in film. And so I was thinking about maybe film school, you know, or, um, getting into like film production. Um, and, but I kind of knew that that was not going to be supported by my parents, like applying directly into films, into film school. Um, I don't know for sure if I was ever told that, um, in uncertain terms, but it was kind of just one of those things where I was like, oh, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. You know, I don't think that's an option for me. Like I need to go to like a liberal arts college, you mm -hmm. know, or like, and so, you know, but I, I was always kind of a cast a wide net kind of person, you know? And so I, um, knew I wanted to go to a city. I wanted to go to New York or LA or San Francisco. And I happened to, uh, get into NYU and, um, best of both worlds. You know, I applied into their college of liberal arts. Um, but while I was there, I took, um, all the film stuff I could, <laughs> you know, I produced student films. I had internships at like casting agencies and at late night comedy shows. And, you know, I, I really dedicated my college years to a career in that field. Um, uh, and like jokes on my parents, like in the liberal arts school, I majored in journalism as if that is any more like economically reliable than having had a film degree, <laughs> you know? So, um, but you know, just having a, a liberal arts degree was important. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and so that was kind of really what I dedicated like the bulk of my teen years and college years too. And then um, I got to senior year and was like, after having four year, four of the best years of my life in New York, honestly. Um, uh, and, and I was like, shit, I don't want to live in Los Angeles, <laughs> you know? And like, that was kind of like the real thing. And at the time, I remember the exact reasons why. And now they're kind of like laughable because like the way life turned out. But um, I remember my reasons at the time were uh, a couple. There were one, I was like, I don't ever want to have to own a car. Um, after having four years of like a great public transportation system in New York, I was like, I don't want to live in my car like people in LA do. Um, and I also had it in my head that I had this conception of LA, which now I know to be wrong. Um, but I thought to myself, you know, I don't want to live in a one industry town and I don't want to work in an industry where people don't have to read the paper every day to kind of be knowledgeable. You know, I remember phrasing it to that myself at the, at the time. Um, but I think really what that boiled down to was I, I didn't want to live in a one industry town. And cause I was still this like, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, interested person, you know, and I think I was getting a little gun shy about over specializing in something. Um, and so I did like a little bit of about face and I was like, okay, I'm not going to move to LA. Um, but you know, in the, <laughs> I ended up moving straight to Bloomington, Indiana for what I'll only call a boy mishap. Uh, and then, um, <laughs> um, but then I ended up going to grad school in Chicago. Um, and that was kind of like, you know, my, I had minored, one of my minors was in politics, you know, so I was always interested with my upbringing, especially like, you know, traveling the world. I was always interested in international things. And so I decided to go to grad school for international relations. And I really was like, okay, I want to like work in nonprofits and NGOs do international development work. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like the first the first kind of, uh, uh, I would say, half-hearted attempt to work in, in entertainment, but then kind of did a real about face uh, right around graduation time. That's awesome. I, I think you, so you, I mean, mo most of us don't end up having that, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the audacity to pursue the passion hmm. early, right? Like we generally put our head down do the thing, pay your dues, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, and, and so many creative people, you know, uh, maybe they dabble in it, but like, they don't really pursue it or try to pursue it as, as seriously as it seems like you did until they have stability in their career or mm. they come to a point where they're like, screw this. I can't do it. Right. Like, so that's interesting. Cause I, I would not describe myself as that. I think I was no. very risk averse. You know, I huh. was, I spent my whole college career just like wanting to like, how can I make money? How can I be financially independent? How can I be financially stable? And like, what, you know, one thing that I failed to mention was that like at the time, most of the entertainment work that was happening in New York was very much freelance, right? And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to live in a city this expensive and like be living paycheck to paycheck, contract to contract. You know, I was mm. like, I want health insurance. I want stability. Well, joke was on me to bring that phrase up again, because I spent the next like eight years trying to find that kind of stability in other fields. And it was a joke, you know? And so 
Um, looking back, and I don't have regrets, you know, but I, cause I, I did what I could with the information I had at the time. But well, looking back on it, I really wish that I had just moved to LA and kind of said, give yourself five years. Give yourself five years and try it out, learn about it. If you succeed, awesome. If you don't, awesome. You know, and so, because um, I kind of like spent my 20s seeking out what I thought would be stability, mm. but that doesn't exist. Not in our well, world I mean, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to skip all the way ahead, but like yeah. to give people sort of, you know, the spoiler alert, like <laughs> you get to use a lot of that in your work now, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you speak, you coach, you workshop, um, you, you teach people organizational improv. And so those skills, and I guess here's another thing, like everything blends, right? Like mm-hmm. we, we, we also are, are led to believe that there's a lot of binaryism or at least, you know, siloing of career choices, right? Like yeah. either you're a doctor or you're a comedian, but mm. what if you're Ken Jung? You're both, right? What? Like, and then, and then you end up playing a doctor as a comedian. Yeah. As a doctor on TV, right? Like, I think he still so, keeps his license up to like he still. Why the hell his wouldn't you, right? Like, yeah. why would you? Why yeah. would you let it lapse? Those conferences must be fun for like the uh, <laughs> the CE yeah. conferences where he goes to and all the yeah. everybody's like, why is he here? Yeah, <laughs> but but I think it's fascinating because I, I think it is a life lesson, and I think it's a lesson that many of us learn later in life is that everything contributes to where you are today, the good and the bad and the painful. Mm-hmm. And that you don't have to choose one thing, this notion that when you're 17 applying to college and you have to pick a major, like that's the thing. Mm -hmm. And nobody retires at the company they start anymore. Nobody gets a gold watch. The loyalty isn't there for the company to take care of you. And it's not just the publicly traded, you know, uh, you know, capitalist companies like hospital systems are not loyal anymore. You know, they're more run like businesses, nonprofits, government. And like, so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's okay to weave and to sort of create this thing. You know, I was just thinking about this this past week, you know, where I went to undergrad at USC. When I was there, they introduced this new sort of scholarship program called Renaissance Scholars. Hmm. And so what they would do is they would find students who would like be double majoring in these disparately different, you know, majors, like Hmm. engineering and dance. And they're like, look at this Renaissance person. And I think it just perpetuated the things that those things didn't belong in the first place. Ah, Like I knew what their intent was, but like, it was celebrating it to the point where I thought it wasn't normalizing it, right? Like, yeah. why can't you have two things you want to do? Why Why does it have to? I get it, right? It was well-intentioned. They wanted to do, and it was all marketing, right? Like, USC, you can do everything, yeah. right? But like, why can't you be an academic and an mm-hmm. artist? Because yeah. life is too short to have, you know, it's both too long and too short to have just one professional identity. So totally. I, I think your life and your story tells us and that that's wonderful why I story. I love it at NYU because I went there not really knowing what I wanted to major in, mm. but I was like, no matter what I want to do, I can find it here. And if I can't, they have a whole yeah. school of individualized study where I can make up my own major. You know, so yeah. I was like, again, that casting a wide net. You know, I yeah. was like, I think I, I always had this like suspicion of over specializing anything you know so yeah i yeah and you know there's a new book from 2020 uh i think it's the david epstein range where it's just like you know being a jack of all trades and like being oh. proficient at a number of things is is actually the skill that people want um that's cool i haven't heard of that know, book but yeah, yeah i really but, took to heart in my journalism classes i remember like the head of the department um he would always tell us that like journalists are committed generalists and um and i always loved that phrase and i still 
think of myself that way, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I should definitely read that book. Yeah. I think you have to, because you have to, I mean, this is, I, and, and you know, it's not just journalists. I think as a human being, like mm -hmm. you have to take an interest in a lot of different things, right? Like um, I look at a world map and like, I don't know, I haven't been to 90% of the countries out there or maybe not, yeah. right? Like, and so like, isn't that exciting? The fact that like, we can think about going to those places and like learn, you know, like, and so when, when, you know, I, I guess, you know, I'm really, really good at one thing. Fantastic. But like, what are your hobbies then? Right? Like, what yeah. are you learning to broaden your horizon? Uh, and particularly in, in the work that you ended up doing later in life, which was consulting both internally at a big firm and then on your own, mm -hmm. like that requires, you know, a sort of a Swiss knife, Swiss army knife sort of yeah. toolkit to, you know, because you're not literally taking the same playbook and going to every client and saying, this is the promised land, like, mm -hmm. you know, copy, paste, copy, paste. And so tell us about that part of your life. And, you know, I know that many folks listening, you know, we don't have to get permission from our parents or have to justify our career decisions mm -hmm. to our parents. But tell us about that. Like, because I think, you know, for myself too, when sort of making the transition from, you know, uh, quote unquote, safe and stable corporate environments to something on my own, you know, they always want the best for us. And to them, safety is stability and stability is good. Yeah. And so like, that's frightening for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But like, how was that for you going from, you know, working at a large firm and then saying, I, I, I can either do this on the outside to do it my way, make mm -hmm. more money, have more freedom. Like, tell us yeah. about that process. Well, I'd be happy to, but there's also kind of a step before that. So I, I ended up leaving the NGO field. Um, before I went into consulting. So, mm. um, so that was kind of a big, a big moment in my life because a big reason I left was because of sexual harassment, you know? And so, um, wow. and I think this is, I'm, I've since learned weird because I, you know, with the Me Too movement and all, everything that I've kind of consumed and learned since my own experience with workplace sexual harassment, I've understood just how weird I am and how weird I was back then because my immediate reaction when I was sexually harassed was to tell everybody at my company. <laughs> I like wanted every single person to know because this man should have been shamed, right? And should have, yeah. And so I realized just what an opposite reaction I had that most women have. And I've kind of thought about like where that comes from. And I think it's like, to tie it back to being Asian American, I think like throughout my life, I've took pleasure in surprising people who assume I'm going to be this meek, quiet, compliant, South Asian petite woman, you know, <laughs> and that I'm just going to like suck That's it up. That's a lot of qualifiers it. there. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, um, and and yeah, and so I think, you know, chicken or egg, whether I always was like that or I became like that, who knows. But but I had a very different response and reaction to my own experience. And I think it was equal parts that, but it was also like, I was entry level at an NGO. I was making barely minimum wage. So it was like, what's the risk that I'm taking, you know, in, mm. at this job, you know, but then for someone like my father who as it turns out, values that stability a lot more than I did, <laughs> I learned, you know, like, it was still kind of like, oh, well, maybe you should stay at that job. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, no fucking way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, um, 
And so, yeah. And so that's like, and I read a lot about like, you know, women and men who experience those things in the workplace and they think they have to put up with it, but it's also like, well, okay, is that job really what you want anyway? Is it really worth it? I was like, I'm not going to be paid minimum wage to be put in harm's way all the time by my leadership. You know, like, I'm not going to do that, you know, like, um, um, and so, so I left that career and then went into consulting because yay, consulting, they like take people from all backgrounds. It's so great. (laughs) And so, and so, um, and so that, that was really, I looked at it as a kind of career correction for me, you know, like Mm. going into, um, consulting. Well, one, I really wanted to get private sector experience and, you know, consulting was like a really good um, entry to, to switch to the private sector for a time. Um, and so what was it like? You know, it was, like I said, career correction. It was like amazing to work in a place where you actually felt invested in, where there was actually professional development, you know, <laughs> where there was like, um, and it sounds weird to say, but like I encountered so many more colleagues that worked with like utmost integrity at my consulting firm than I yeah. did at my NGO, you know, it was, you wouldn't expect it. Right. But, um, it was like a breath of fresh air. Like I'd, I'd always yeah. been a pretty pre-professional career minded undergrad student. So it really felt like, ah, oh, I'm back. I'm back again, <laughs> you know, like working like a professional and being encouraged to, you know, so, um, so it was, it was really good. Um, yeah, I don't know if that completely answered your question, but I, I think there was more, more to it that you wanted to know, but. Well, tell me about the, the you know, the decision-making process process to go on your own, yeah. um, to, to leave, you know, uh, the firm that you were at, it's a, you know, global big four firm. Like it's, I, I understand why somebody might want to leave, but the outside perception is, yeah. you know, it's, it's safe to stay the course. You might make partner one day, so on and so forth. What led you to leaving it and, you know, uh, founding Mindhatch and starting down your own, building your own empire per se? Yeah, definitely a few reasons. And so like, I'm, I'm really big on like, for me, a good reason to stop doing something or leave a job is if I've stopped learning. Like if I've learned all I can there, and I really feel like I milked my time at Deloitte, you know, just like I milked my four years in New York in college, you know, (laughs) like, like, I feel like I left no stone unturned, you know, and got everything out of it that I possibly could. And it was, it was really great. Um, but I, I felt like at a certain point I was like, okay, I don't have anything more to learn that I at least will value. Right. And so, um, I think another thing was like early on in my career in consulting, it was wonderful. It was so entrepreneurial. They really encouraged like consultants and senior consultant level, to kind of explore, I mean, of course you need to kind of like be bringing in money and serving clients, you know, but there was a lot of room to, um, manage your own professional development and kind of pursue your interests. And that was why I got to do so much work and innovation while I was there, you know, because Mm -hmm. that was my interest and I got connected to it and I let people know. And, and so everything that I'm doing through my own company now, I actually started doing while I was there, you know, it's like all credit to my time there, but I started kind of like, learning that like the higher up you went, the less freedom you had to do that. And like the more, the more the career advice became like, just attach yourself to a senior manager who's going to become partner. And like, that's like the only way to move up. Yeah. And I was like, 
that is bad shit crazy. Like that is so high risk. Like what if asking your manager gets fired or quits yeah. and it's hit by a bus? Then you're just like left holding the bag, you know? And I was like, that is not a career strategy, you know, to like just attach yourself to someone's coattails, you know? And so, um, so I kind of felt like I had gotten what I wanted and needed from the experience. Mm. Um, and I also wanted to do this more innovative, creative work full time. I also at that point was really sick and tired of the artifice of working in an office and bureaucracy and office politics, which I refused to play, you know, and they'd rather you play it badly than not play it at all, you know, and so, um, um, and I would just not participate in it. And so I was really wanting to kind of see, okay, can I support myself and live and do work while shedding all that other stuff? You know, and so that's that's kind of really what um, kind of like the culmination of factors that led me to want to want to leave mm. and, and try my hand at my own my own thing. How was that process? And, and what are you and then let's specifically talk about you being a South Asian woman in a consulting field. Yeah. Like, did that help? Were you who, who was hiring you? What was that process like? And, you know, it's too. I think difficult personally, you know, um, identifying traits about who we are can't mm-hmm. change anything about that. Um, but tell us about that and, and how, you know, um, how you approach that, what were you prepared to do? Um, and, and sort of, you know, did you leave with the book of clients that said, Hey, we're going to hire you wherever you go. Six years later, now you have a different perspective on things, but in its infancy, like tell us about the, the struggle and sort of that hustle. Yeah. So the, the hustle was real. And so the, to answer your question, like, no, I did not leave with a book of clients because um, the clients at my big four consulting company were serving were like, they weren't, my, my big four consulting company was not selling innovation and creative work, you know? Mm. And so when I um, left, it was really like a career change, you know, it wasn't just kind of like, changing the apparatus through which I worked and doing the same work. It was a complete wholesale changing of the work that I was delivering for clients. Um, so I did not leave with a book of clients. Um, but, um, but yeah, what, what it was like was like, you know, I was in Washington, D.C. at the time, not the hotbed for innovation and creativity, as you might imagine. And um, so I really was just going on a lot of coffee chats, talking to a lot of people, just kind of like, networking, you know, which is not a dirty word, which my, my time at my consulting firm really showed me the value of just being direct with people about what you do and what you want and what you're interested in, you know? And so, um, um, and so, yeah, I just did a lot of that and a lot of just personal and professional networking. Um, and, and I'm not going to lie, you know, it was, I felt like a frontierswoman on many occasions, because, you know, I was in Washington, DC, you know, and Mm. a lot of my coffee chats, even if they were easy to get, you know, I'd be sitting across from someone and they'd say, Oh, tell me what is design thinking? Or what is improv? You know, and so I was really needing to start from like a real foundational level of like, informing and educating people let alone getting them higher up on the sales curve to like understanding the value <laughs> of, of these things, you know? And so, um, so yeah, so it was a lot of just hustle and talking and experimenting with things and, you know, failing a lot and just 
throwing things out there and seeing what would stick and trying to kind of, you know, practice different ways of talking about what I did until I found a way that felt comfortable to me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and accurate. And, um, yeah. Um, but in terms of your question about being, being South Asian, you know, I, I, I am definitely one of those people who regrettably am very late in life kind of contending and confronting and understanding my race and my ethnicity, you know, and, um, I never denied it growing up. Like I love certain parts of my culture. I love the food. I love the clothes. I love the jewelry, you know, like I love the weddings. Like they're so much more fun than American weddings, you know? And so like, um, I remember my, the first American wedding I went to, I was like, why are people crying? Like, why are people sad? I was like, and, oh. and, and then the, it's over <laughs> and it's, it's already over. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like how many more days are left? Yeah. And then, like, you know, so, um, so I really liked a lot of things about my culture, you know, but, um, but you know, where I, growing up, I never with very, very few circumstances that I have to kind of like, Oh, you're South Asian or you're Indian because I was like the only Indian kid, like, despite there being a lot of Indian families in my community, I was kind of like a little Island. Like I was the only Indian kid, like, within two grades ahead of me and within two years behind me. And that was from like elementary school on. I was always the only mm. Indian person, like sometimes in the school, you know, because like the people older than me had already graduated or, you know, um, and, and it's this thing where like, I'm sure that people just assumed or accepted me as white, but I didn't really know that until a lot later. So I, I often say that like, the first time I ever really had to contend with the fact that I am a woman was my first job where I was sexually harassed three months in. <laughs> and, um, and then the first time I really felt exposed as a person mm. of color was after the 2016 election. That's when I felt like, Oh shit. Like because of the way I look like I cannot hide. Not that I wanted to hide. You know, but I just felt like so exposed, you know. Um, and so I'm regrettably a little bit late in kind of understanding all these forces at work and kind of examining and reexamining the role that they've played in my in my life. Um, but when it comes to kind of, you know, leaving my consulting firm and starting my own company, um, you know, thankfully I haven't haven't too much needed to grapple with things like that. I think, I mean, it's one reason why I think, well, definitely one reason why I chose to start my own company mm. was because it really felt like the only way I could work in a meritocracy. And I think that, <laughs> I, I mean it, I mean it, you know? And like, I think that's true for anyone who's not white, male, cis, <laughs> you know? Like, um, none of us work in a meritocracy. It's just that it only benefits white cis males, you know? And so, um, so yeah. So I think there's definitely, uh, an underlying reason to why I wanted to work for myself. And that, that was it. You're not seeing this on video folks, but I, I was laughing and smiling a lot. And then there's a reason <laughs> why I think Kenora and I are friends now and, and we have amazing <laughs> conversations. Um, because I, I, we were, we are lucky, um, mm -hmm. enough to have had these realizations not because we read it in a book, because we've had crappy, really, 
you know, like self-doubting experiences where the myth of meritocracy also tells you that if something is bad, it's because it's your fault, that you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not working hard enough, you don't take direction well, let's throw some, you know, uh, corporate working in there, you're not coachable, you know, (laughs) you don't have the right mindset, you're not a team player, like all these things that ultimately, without questioning if you're on the right bus, they blame you for not being a good bus community member, right? Like, or they might the, change the bus. Right. And it doesn't matter what. I mean, that's what happened to me at the end of my career right. in consulting was like, they just, they said, here are the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. And then like a month before performance reviews, they changed the rules. And I was like, you are fucking with my livelihood now. You yes. are fucking with my bonus, my salary, my performance rating, you know? And like, I was right. like, I was like, I've had enough, you know, like I am a rule following compliant person and it has gotten me nowhere. (laughs) And so so I remember actually when I decided to leave my consulting firm, um, I remember telling with some of my friends, I was like, yeah, you know what? I just feel like after a couple of careers and blah, 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 I just feel like I'm not one of those South Asians who is like good at being obedient to hierarchy and authority and stuff like that. And like, and my friends were like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. You know, and they were like, they kind of seen that in me before I even saw it because I was so used to excelling by doing the right thing from the time I was in elementary school, you know, and then suddenly you get into the working world and you're like, oh, it is not a meritocracy in the way that school is, you know, like, and sure. um, yeah. Well, even, even school. I, I think yeah. I would argue even um, American education, whether it's private mm. or public, doesn't matter what resources are available to you, given where you happen oh, to grow up, totally. who gets additional support to do better in standardized testing, mm-hmm. application process, who whose dad went to what school, you oh, know, like yeah. all these things. Like when I mean, you went to NYU, I went to USC, like these are also like bastions of private school privilege where yeah. if somebody, you know, like we like, like we did Scion Awards, right? Like, you know, like. There's a special category of scholarships for this, you know, legacy kids. And and so, yeah, it's as close to meritocracy as we can get. Um, yeah. And this is not, you know, I don't, I don't want people to think about like, oh, look at these, you know, privileged people complaining about how tough they had it. Like, that's not the point. The point yeah. is we have to realize, I, I think we can be grateful for the opportunities that we had and the system that we have, but also recognize that it's not fair for everybody. Yeah. And then and certainly- And to make it fairer for other people. You know, like sure. we're- we're out of the system now, thankfully. And so now with right. reflection, we can understand how fucked right. up a lot of it was, you know. And, but, and, um, and, what's, yeah. and what's really sad, though, is, you know, um, when we still talk to young people, whether they're in college or just starting to work, mm-hmm. that mindset of the myth of meritocracy is still being drained in them to them so hard yeah. that when they don't get promoted, when they don't get the bonuses, when they don't get the things that are promised to them, they blame themselves. Mm-hmm. They go, what am I not doing right? Yeah, what you know? can I do? Yeah. And then in this rat race sort of uh, scarcity mindset context, they go, why is Sally better than me? Why is mm-hmm. Joe getting promoted? And, and so it's, you know, becomes this weird toxic bubble of sorts, right? And, and one mm-hmm. more, you know, comment what you said was sort of in corporate America or in any other system where somebody else dictates your value. Yeah of compensation. Mm-hmm. What the heck? Right? Like, yeah, <laughs> I, again, and if you, if you thrive in that system, great. Mm-hmm. Right. There are many jobs you can't do alone. 
right? Mm-hmm. You want to be an ER doctor? Can't do that on your own. Yep, you can't right? freelance. Yep. Correct. <laughs> yeah. You want you want to be a judge? You have to work mm-hmm. for the government, right? Like I get that. And so this is not like, you know, one of the things I also hate, which is hustle monstering and like, mm-hmm. you are in charge of your own. This is not about that. Yeah. This is about not tying your self-worth to a fake monetary number yeah. that a committee who's been told how much to give out based on some other committee's number, yeah. based on some <laughs> other committee's funny. number. <laughs> like that, you shouldn't feel anything. That does not say anything about you. It actually says everything about how a room full of strangers, largely male, largely white, yeah. largely older, think about your quote unquote value mm-hmm. to their team or your value to their bottom line. And mm-hmm. so, you know, kick ass, make a lot of money, get promoted. We will root the hell out of it for you, but please do not ever, ever, ever tie that to your self-worth because you mm-hmm. are far greater than that. And that, you know, the sacrifices and the generations of people who've come before you to make you mm-hmm. who you are, like that's your legacy and that's your value to humanity. Mm-hmm. Not, I got a 3% raise while everybody else got five. Yeah. Why does everybody hate me? Right. I thought this, back to this myth of stability, you know, like I thought, oh, I got an NGO job with healthcare, stable. Right. Nope. <laughs> it paid crap and, right. you know, had all these other problematic things about it. And then, yeah. um, and then cool consulting job, stability, healthcare, salary, upward growth. But then, you know, by the time I, I left, they decided to switch from no more salary increases, only bonus model. And I was like, bonuses are taxed 40%. You know, and it was just, and like, it's one time and it's one time you and know? it doesn't compound and, and nothing predictable. And so I was like, here I am again, having sought out financial independence and stability yeah. and I'm still not getting it, you know? know? And so it was like this lack of control, you know? And I was like, you know what? Screw it. Like I much rather prefer now that I'm seven years into having my company. Like if I have a shitty year, it's on me. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like, and it's, it, it's, it's within my control to fix it, problem solve, figure it out, yep. you know, and, and it's not to the whims of yeah. other people who like right. have other agendas at play other than truly sure. assessing my value, you know? So, um, yeah. And, and a visual that I had, you know, um, was look, I can lay a brick into somebody's giant castle that I'll never get to live in or be invited <laughs> to, yeah. or I could spend that energy like building, I don't know, um, a tent or mm-hmm. whatever, some not as glamorous as a castle version of a smaller, tinier house, <laughs> but it's mine. Yeah. Right. And, and throughout the course of my life, I can upgrade my house. I can build a bigger empire. Or if I choose to, I can go build something else if that doesn't suit my needs. Mm-hmm. But if you are the bricklayer in a large castle, that's the only thing that you're allowed to do. And it's a great visual for me because you lack the clarity and the perspective to see what the grand vision is. You're just Mm -hmm. told to do one thing and you're only comparing yourselves in that moment to the other bricklayers who sit beside you and basically being judged for why aren't you doing it better, faster, more neatly than the the person next to you. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about more quitting. So we've talked Mm -hmm. about quitting jobs and leaving and, you know, sort of venturing off in your own thing. Um, you, You have taken your decades of experience um, particularly the last seven years of um, helping global institutions, government um, organizations and leaders across the world in innovation, consulting and coaching and speaking and, and doing all the things that uh, make you a badass human being. 
And then you've taken all that wisdom and you are in the process of writing a book. Mm-hmm. As, as we speak, you've met your um, kickoff campaign goal. So the book is going to happen. Yeah. It is called I Quit. Um, it is coming out in April of next year. Uh-huh. And so you can pre-order it now. It is I Quit, The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up. And even just the idea of the book, Connor, I think it's exciting because we, and I know you didn't write this book particularly for Asian Americans, but I think for Asian Americans and immigrants in particular, this idea of tenacity and this idea of never giving up and this longevity and loyalty and all the words mm-hmm. are what we have been ingrained to do. That somehow length of service is more important than quality of service mm. or length of employment is better than happiness. And so you got to quit. And, you know, and even, even in American macho culture, you know, winners don't quit or, yeah. you know, don't quit, <laughs> keep going. Like, what if you are in a toxic relationship, personal or professional? Mm-hmm. You know, what if the opportunity cost is better somewhere else? All these things that we don't actually consider because to consider that would require us to take many, many steps back and perhaps pause the activity at hand and to look at things from a different angle or a different perspective altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think for me, it's instead of getting frustrated that you can't solve this particular formula, You've never asked yourself, is this problem the one I should be solving? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so it all has to do with perspective change and, you know, all that. Share with us um, what your book is about, why you wrote it, and why we should go buy it. Sure. Well, you know, the origin story of the book is like actually uh, weirdly enough tied with what I mentioned, tied to what I mentioned earlier about all like the coffee chats I was going on at the beginning of founding my company, you know, and, and, from a lot of those coffee chats, I, you know, like you're in Washington, D.C. and you're meeting someone for the first time and you kind of like the first 10 minutes, you're kind of like you kind of like regurgitating your resume at each other, you know, and I and I found myself in those moments just kind of like really probably rudely interrupting people being like, oh, wait, wait, tell me why you left that job or tell me why you left that city, you know, and just being really curious about that. And I and I found that served me really well in getting to know these people. You know, and I think, and I started to be really interested in quitting stories and like the why. And I think you can learn so much about someone's values, their belief systems, you know, like what is their 10 out of 10? It's going to piss them off. You know, what are they going to, what are their trade-offs, you know? And, and so I found that to be really valuable in just everyday conversation, you know, like with people I knew or not knew. And so I was always just really interested in it. And that's kind of like the germ of the idea for the book. And so the book is a collection of everyday people's quitting stories and really about how they summoned the courage to quit and to upend their own status quo, you know? And um, and the book spans stories of like quitting jobs and careers, quitting people and relationships, quitting habits, identities, aspirations, even places. Um, and, and yeah, and so it's a collection of stories and it's, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the, the goal of the book is to help people really rethink quitting and quitters. And from my conversations with these people, but also like the many quits in my life, you know, we haven't even talked about half of them, I think. Um, they were always positive. There was always about like forward momentum and making progress in my life. 
you know? And I feel like I, you know, life is long. I'm not to say that my life is complete or perfect, but I feel like I, I got to what I wanted so much more quickly because I was willing to not stick it out. <laughs> you know, I was willing to like take the information I had and make a strong choice for my life. Um, and, um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah. And so why, why people should read this book? I think, um, one, if you kind of agree with my stance on quitting or disagree, I think the stories in the book will give you a lot of inspiration and motivation to kind of rethink your own past quitting stories, maybe even to like re-examine and be like, oh, wait, I thought I'd never quit something, but oh, actually I did, you know? And um, then maybe also give you a, a platform to kind of use your own quitting stories to really understand, okay, what do you value? And how do you want to start living those values more? Um, a really intriguing thing about the people who I interviewed um, for the book um, so many of them identified as either recovering perfectionists or current perfectionists. And a lot of the stories they told me were about their first quit, their first big quit. And um, across the board, these people were like, once I did it once, I couldn't stop. Like once I did it <laughs> once, I had all this confidence. I realized that it wasn't that bad. The world didn't end. I was okay. And I was even better, you know? And so, so now I'm like looking around for what other things can I like quit, you know? And so, um, it was like, once you rip off that bandaid, you know, like it's, uh, um, people realize like, like just how much agency and control you actually have over your life, you know, for sure. Yeah. It's so empowering because you can't, quitting is good, you know, quitting is good. And I think, you know, it's, and we often just associate the word quit with like the extremely widely accepted bad things yeah. like addiction, smoking, toxic relationships. But there's this massive gray area of things that you should at least consider quitting. Mm. And I think people are so afraid of, and, and this is, you know, more economic terms, but the hmm. two concepts of opportunity cost and sunk cost. Sunk cost. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, sunk cost is done. You can't think about it, but the opportunity cost of you missing out on either value or even happiness on the other side, because you haven't quit, like, yeah. You should, right? Like, and I yeah. think when we talk about rebirth, repurposing, and just sort of nobody's going to do the one thing for the rest of their lives, then you have to quit to move on to something else, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I read that in my introduction, actually, where it's like on the stigma and the shame of quitting that exists, you know? And and it's just like it. we've let ourselves be tricked into believing mm -hmm. that maintaining the status quo Sticking yeah. it out for the sake of sticking it out is less risky than making the choice, right? And it, the thing but is that quitting is a choice, but so is not quitting, right? And it's like, if you don't want to live your life with inertia, you know, it's like, understand that, like, yes, if you are not making a choice to change or to quit or whatever it may be, you're still making a choice, right? You're not 
playing it safe, so to speak. It's like, it's a risk if you do, it's a risk if you don't. But I think it goes back to, especially for us children or immigrants ourselves, mm. it's this notion that quitting leads to instability. Yeah. It's that safe in your hand, while toxic as it may be, is still safe. Mm-hmm. You know, what? what is it? What do they say? A known evil is better than a unknown unknown, right? Huh. Like, yeah. I'm not saying it right, but you know what it's I mean? Like, Rumsfeldian of you, yeah. <laughs> people just want stability, even if that stability isn't leading to any sort of happiness or any sort of benefit. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's it's a good reminder for all of us to consider all the things and how all these things impact the way we view the world um, and how it impacts our happiness. I think if anything we've learned in 2020, um, as we started the show with, it has been a time to reevaluate. And because a lot of that social cost that would have made people very scared to quit my friends won't invite me to stuff, whatever. Like a lot of it has depressed a little bit, right? We can't meet in person. So a lot of that anxiety should have sort of worked itself out. Everybody's home. Everybody is going through this thing together. And so, yeah, I hope your book encourages more people to, um, I, I don't think it's, it's a, you know, a crying call to quit everything that you're involved with, but it is to really take a look at life from a holistic and objective perspective to say, are we asking ourselves the right question today? And, you know, should I consider even for a moment that I repurpose and sort of pivot away from what I thought was the end all be all or to consider an alternative? And I think through your work as a consultant, as a coach and as a speaker um, and through this book, I I hope genuinely that people um, learn to see the different side of things just a little bit and that, you know, working at a company for 30 years, you know, putting all your eggs in the same basket as promotion, as, you know, progression. You got to ask yourself if the ladder that you're trying to climb leads to the top number one or two, should, do you even want to be on the ladder in the first place? Who told you that ladder was the right way? Right. Yeah. And, and all these questions, you know, and we don't have the answers for you. We're just here to pose the questions so that you get to a point where you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. It's all, yeah. you know, you're, everybody's on their own path, you know. Yeah. And to me, it really, from speaking to these people for my book, it really, it really does kind of come down to like your values, you know? So I, I thought when I was like 19, 20, that like financial stability was what I valued. Right. And Mm -hmm. I spent maybe wasted a few years seeking that and then realized that it wasn't going to come. And so, and so my values changed. Right. And so now you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I've had my business for almost seven years. I mean, yeah. no one would say I value financial stability over the things that I have now, like doing the work I love, autonomy, you know, and um, not working in a bureaucracy. So like my, I learned more about myself and yeah. my values shifted with the information that I got, you know? And so I'd say, yeah, like, you know, ask yourself those questions. And if, the answer to your questions are, yes, you value stability over other things. That's perfectly okay. Just understand that you are still making a choice, right? And make sure that you are making an active choice as opposed to just like bobbing along the waves of life, you know, with no agency. 100%. Yeah. 
hundred percent. And and I think that's important for you know there. Again, there's no one right way to live life. You know, we've made choices in our lives that have led us to these different places. And there are some days where I look at my friends who didn't leave corporate life or anything. And I'm like, oh, there are some parts of their lives that are still good and stable and, you know, Mm -hmm. not nerve wracking. Obviously, I snap out of it once I remind myself, dude, you left that for a reason. (laughs) Yeah. But there are moments like where we don't, you know, it's not without doubt, moments of doubt and, you know, questioning ourselves or all that good stuff. Yeah. Whereas the, the first person, the first friend of mine who bought her own house did move to LA to work in entertainment, <laughs> you know? And so I was like, what? She has stability, you know, doing the thing that I thought would, you know, not give me stability. You know, you just, you just yeah. never know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this has been fun. I think one thing that we didn't speak about explicitly, but is something that should be celebrated and we will celebrate is the fact that you've taken your own narrative and have put it out into the universe. And just through the act of, starting your own business, um, writing your own book and sharing your story so that people can walk through a bookstore and have a book on your shelf with your name on it, with your family name on it. Mm. That's important. That I think in the long run is so important to make sure that not just our kids and we, you know, we always talk about the next generation, but Mm -hmm. for even us and our parents to realize that we as immigrants and we as Asian Americans can and will write books that help shape our culture at large and to encourage more people to write. Mm. I continue to be tired of walking through the bookstore and seeing the same names. (laughs) (laughs) The top 10 podcast list that anybody else publishes is generally a rotating list of the same guys. Mm. And they all sort of look the same. And (laughs) why should they dictate what we think. Why should they dictate how we define our lives? And and why should we let other people really, you know, shape the way that we view life and success? Mm-hmm. And your way isn't the right way. My isn't way the right way. My way isn't either. But mm-hmm. the more that we can share our stories and to get it out there, to give the next person the confidence to write their own book literally mm-hmm. and write their own life, I think is more meaningful and more impactful than anything else that we could do. And so I want to ask you to help us finish out the show in the way that we always do, uh, which is in the form of the Dear Asian Americans letter and share with the audience and Asian Americans everywhere, whatever you want to share, lessons from your life, perspectives. Of course, we're going to go tell them to buy your book and follow you everywhere. (laughs) But in addition to that, what are some things that you'd like to share with our uh, community? And so Help us close out the show, Kanar, and finish the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, um, I would say hard work does not always pay off. And I don't mean that in like a Debbie Downer kind of way. I mean it as like a just know that it's not input output in life. Just because you work hard at something doesn't mean you're going to get what you deserve or even what you've earned. So you may as well work hard at something that you love and enjoy and that matches what you value. Um, Don't feel like you need to be everything to everyone all the time. Uh, And it's okay to make choices for yourself. That's beautiful. Go buy the book. It's called I Quit. When it comes out, or I guess even before then, 
we'll do some sort of a giveaway here on the show and then share it with you all. I have a problem, which is I generally impulse buy books written by Asian American folks. <laughs> My wife doesn't like it so much because I have a bookshelf <laughs> full of like, are you ever really going to read those books? Um, probably. I hope so. But I know how the industry works and I just want to put out the support that I think I would like in the case that I put out something, right? And it's important to tell the Barnes and Nobles and the Amazons of the world that our books matter and that people will buy Asian American stories if you put it out there. Even if the content isn't particularly like yours, Asian American focused, it's the fact that people with our names get to sell books. And that's critically important because we're also trying to sell books and exist in ecosystems that weren't designed necessarily for us to have the best. It's not a meritocracy either, right? So yeah. the New York Times seller is not a meritocracy. What? Yes, it's not a meritocracy. <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> Newsflash. So thank you so much. Uh, you can follow Kanor. Um, we'll put all the links to where you can follow her across her social media channels. Her website is mindhatchllc.com. The title of her book, I Quit. Can I Quit? Subtitle. The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up, currently going on Indiegogo. We'll put the links to there as well. But please do support your Kanor and all your Asian-American creators, authors, podcasters, fellow podcasters everywhere. Even though we've talked a lot about quitting today, the decision to start a book, to start a business is equally, if not more so, frightening. And <laughs> we also want to encourage and you know celebrate those who've done that after they quit the thing that wasn't making them happy. So, Kanor, you and I can probably talk about this for hours, and yeah. we probably will at some point. <laughs> um, come back and join us on the show. Uh, would love to get your thoughts and perspective once the book has released and, and to see how your life has changed and how your work has changed and, and how all of our lives have changed through the pandemic and sharing our story. So thank you for jumping on, and we wish you health and happiness up there in the Pacific Northwest, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much, and always happy to chat. You know where to find me. <laughs> thank you. Love conversations with like-minded people. Um, excited for her book and really excited for what's to come for her um, and all of our entrepreneurs and all of our coaches, uh, people who have really stepped out um, from the prescribed paths of success that we were raised with and doing great things to better not just um, ourselves, but our community and those around us. So thanks to Kanor. If this story resonated with you, please go ahead and share it. Um, send the link to your friend or just screen capture and tag us on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, wherever you can. In most places, we are at Dear Asian Americans. On Twitter, we are just at Dear Asian Am. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. Again, um, episode 93, marching slowly and weekly on our way to episode 100, where I will be the guest sharing my story for the first time here on the show and commemorating our one-year anniversary together. Email us if you'd like to chat with us. Hello at the Asian Americans. Follow us and like us across all social media. And please, please, please be safe, be healthy, and be happy. We are um, so excited. I am so excited to be able to do this on a weekly basis, sharing our stories. And um, so thank you for listening. It really means a lot. Um, so with that... Thank you for tuning in to episode 93 of The Urgent Americans. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I will see you next week. Please stay safe, healthy, and happy.